Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Will the mask mandate for airplanes and public transportation be going away soon? A federal judge in Florida has struck down the mandate, but it's unclear if the Justice Department will appeal the ruling. A series of shootings marred the Easter holiday weekend, leaving eight people dead and dozens more wounded. Suspected terrorists at the southern border. Customs and Border Protection apprehended 23 known or suspected terrorists. A woman is blaming a candy company for the death of her husband. She says she brought home COVID-19 from working there. And California's Supreme Court is giving her the green light to sue. As Russia focuses its military strength on Ukraine's eastern region, parts of western Ukraine are also under attack. They hit targets in Lviv, and, uh, and I think they also struck in, in Kyiv over the last uh, couple of days. We don't have uh, a clear sense of battle damage assessment about what they were targeting and, and what they hit. A United States judge in Florida struck down the federal mask mandate for airplanes and other public transportation methods. The ruling comes one week after the CDC extended the mask mandate through May 3rd. Federal Judge Catherine Mizell said the mandate was unlawful because it exceeded the statutory authority of the CDC. It's unclear how quickly the ruling will be implemented at airports across the country or if the Justice Department will attempt to block the ruling and file an appeal. Migrants continue to enter the U.S. through the southern border, some possibly with bad intentions. Customs and Border Protection has apprehended 23 individuals who are known or suspected terrorists. According to information obtained by Fox News through a Freedom of Information Act request, the 23 individuals were apprehended in various locations from California to Texas. They are known or suspected to be involved in terrorist activities. The terrorist screening database keeps track of the number of suspected terrorists apprehended at the border. This information, however, is not available to the public. Last month, Representatives James Comer and John Katko, who are ranking members of the House Oversight and Homeland Security Committees, wrote to Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. They said they wanted the number of apprehensions of suspected terrorists to be made public, writing, The American people deserve to know whether President Biden's weak border policies are allowing terrorists to enter our homeland. Around 2 million migrants crossed the Mexican border into the U.S. in 2021. The sixth bus from Texas carrying illegal immigrants reportedly arrived in Washington late last night. The transfers, which started last week, are entirely voluntary. And NGOs have been meeting the buses in D.C., helping to get the illegal immigrants to other transportation hubs and offering food. The busing is part of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's plan to deal with an expected influx of illegal immigrants when the Biden administration ends pandemic border restrictions on May 23rd. I spoke with Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies to learn more. Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies, thank you so much for joining us. What do you think Abbott is trying to do with this busing strategy? Well, I think he's trying to do two things. Um, first of all, he would rather not have all of these new illegal border crossers settling in Texas because of the costs associated for 
the state's uh, taxpayers and also the public safety problems that can happen when with this kind of illegal migration. But secondly, he's trying to send a message not only to the Biden administration, but to the public that he's trying to do something and that state and local authorities have not been coordinating with the federal government, that this is something that is being pushed on them and, and that they have very little control of. So he wants to get people's attention. And so that is part of what's behind this particular policy of busing the migrants to Washington. And it's been going for, on for a series of days. Has he achieved what he set out to do yet? Well, I think so, to, to the extent that he wanted to get everybody's attention. He definitely has achieved that. Um, as far as discouraging migrants from settling in Texas, I'm not sure that it will have that much effect because the ones who have agreed to take the buses to Washington, D.C., probably already wanted to go there anyway, or at least to that part of the country. But he certainly has gotten everyone's attention and um, focused people on what is going on. And judges in many districts around D.C. tend to grant asylum more than, than those in Texas. So in your opinion, is this tactic likely to lead to more illegal immigrants settling down permanently than would have otherwise? No, I don't think so. Uh, because for a number of reasons, um, I don't think it matters where in the country they're going as far as their chances for getting asylum. Half of them don't even bother filling out the forms to make their asylum application. And um, the other half that do, um, they're probably going to be processed under the Biden administration's more lenient rules for granting asylum. And that's you know, even if they're done uh, by judges, I think that most of them are expecting under Biden's rules to be allowed to stay. And if they don't, if their asylum application is not approved, they know that the Biden administration is not going to send them home either. So it really doesn't matter whether they get approved or not. Under Biden policies, almost all of them are here to stay. Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Florida's Education Department has rejected dozens of K-12 math textbooks over what it called indoctrinating concepts. Instead of teaching kids plain mathematics, some books allegedly included racially divisive concepts. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. Florida's Department of Education, or DOE, Friday rejected 41% of math textbooks submitted for use in public schools. This is the highest rate in the state's history. The DOE says the textbooks were impermissible with either Florida's new standards or contained prohibited topics. This includes references to critical race theory, inclusions of Common Core, and the unsolicited addition of social-emotional learning, which has faced pushback for promoting what critics say are Marxist ideas, such as social and racial justice in its curriculum. In a statement, Governor Ron DeSantis said, it seems that some publishers attempted to slap a coat of paint on an old house built on the foundation of Common Core and indoctrinating concepts like race essentialism, especially, bizarrely, for elementary school students. According to the DOE, 71% of books for grade levels K through 5 were rejected, the most in any grade. Grace Coulter, NTD News. 
A federal judge is rejecting an effort by Georgia gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams to challenge a new fundraising law in Georgia. U.S. District Judge Mark Cohen refused to grant Abrams a preliminary injunction blocking the law, but the case isn't over yet. The law Abrams is challenging allows groups chaired by the Georgia governor, the lieutenant governor, and the nominee for either post from major parties to raise funds without limit. But there is a funding limit for other candidates. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who is running for re-election, signed the bill into law last year. The judge says that he turned down the challenge because in her filings, Abrams claimed to be the Democratic Party of Georgia's nominee for governor, even though the primary elections aren't until May. The judge says the injunction Abrams is seeking would require the court to find that Abrams is already the Democratic Party nominee for governor. A woman working for a candy company says she contracted COVID at work and her husband died as a result. Now she's suing the company and the California Supreme Court says she can. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. A woman who infected her husband with COVID-19 after she allegedly contracted the virus at work will have her day in court. The woman, Matilda Eck, contends that if her employer had listened to her complaints, she might not have gotten infected and her husband would be alive today. Her employer, Sees Candies, argued in a petition to the California Supreme Court that Mrs. X's infection should be viewed as a workplace injury and that based on a special workers' compensation doctrine, she could not sue the company. They said she should apply for workers' compensation benefits instead. Mrs. X lawyers alleged that the company failed to implement the proper safety precautions to protect their employees from a high-risk virus and that this failure caused her husband's death. The court agreed with the trial court's ruling that Mrs. X's claim was based on her husband's exposure to the COVID-19 she had and not an injury she suffered on the job. Trade groups are concerned that this decision will lead to a flood of COVID cases and subject businesses to limitless liability. The company's lawyer, Joseph Lee, pointed out in an email to NTD that allowing take-home COVID claims would also open the door to claims based on other illnesses, such as the flu. Mrs. X attorney Joel Chrisman applauded the court's decision. In an email to NTD, he said the Eck family would otherwise have no remedy for this tragic loss when a negligent employer allows a potentially deadly pathogen to spread in its plant, which then infects family members, as we have alleged in this case. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Russian President Vladimir Putin says Western sanctions against Russia have failed and they've only hurt the United States and Europe. This comes as Russia claims to have struck a weapons storage facility in Ukraine's western region. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. In a video released by the State Emergency Service of Ukraine, emergency crews were seen trying to put out a fire at a car tire service point after it was hit by a Russian missile strike. Ukraine said the missile attack in Lviv killed seven people, and they were the first civilian victims in the western city that borders Poland. A Russian official says it was a high-precision missile that struck the Ukrainian forces' supply of weapons. The logistics center and the large consignment of foreign weapons that were delivered to Ukraine over the past six days from the United States and European countries were destroyed. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby said he does not have any clear indication of what the Russians hit or destroyed at this time, but they are investigating. 
Kirby added that it appears the Russians are learning from their mistakes, but they've had long-standing setbacks. These appear to be chronic difficulties that the Russian military has had in terms of logistics and sustainment, command and control, unit cohesion, operational maneuver, integration of air to ground, all problems that they still suffer from. Um, so it remains to be seen whether they have, quote, fixed these problems and are now ready to execute in a more efficient way in the Donbass. Meanwhile, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the Western sanctions against Russia have failed. The initiators themselves couldn't get away with the sanctions. I'm talking about inflation and unemployment growth and economic dynamics worsening in the U.S. and the European countries. And on Monday, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky handed over a completed European Union questionnaire for Ukraine's application for membership to the EU. Ukraine's membership in the EU is something that Russia strongly opposes. Jason Perry, NTD News. Across the country, at least 10 shootings this holiday weekend, leaving eight people dead and dozens injured. We hear more from NTD's Chenny Wu. They got shot. Oh, my God. A wave of gun violence rattled oh communities God. across the country over the Easter holiday weekend. At least 10 shootings took place across eight states, leaving at least eight dead and 50 injured. Taking a look at some of the major shootings, in Pittsburgh, two teenage boys were killed and at least eight people were wounded Sunday during a house party, when at least 90 shots were fired both inside and outside of the home. Police believe that there were multiple shooters and that handguns and a rifle were used. No arrests have been reported. In South Carolina, two separate shootings took place on Saturday. One incident at a busy shopping mall and the other at a nightclub. A total of at least 18 people were wounded. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 144 mass shootings so far this year. The archive defines mass shooting as an incident where four or more people are shot, not including the shooter. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And in lighter news, the White House held its annual Easter egg roll today. First, Lady Jill Biden kicked off the event. NTD's Carrie Nunes has the details. The First Lady oversaw some educational activities mixed in with a traditional egg roll. For generations, presidents and first ladies and kids just like you celebrated the Easter egg roll together, racing and making crafts, reading books, and of course, meeting the Easter Bunny. It was President Biden's first time to welcome kids and parents due to the pandemic restrictions last year. Welcome to the White House. Welcome to your house. Welcome to the South Lawn. Thank you and happy, happy Easter. President Biden and the First Lady joined in on some of the activities. Thousands of kids and parents attended despite the overcast skies. The first White House egg roll was in 1878. It broadcast on the radio in 1929 and then on the internet in 1998. So we can all watch it. However, many would argue that nothing compares to the real-life experience, even on a wet day. Stuart McLaurin, president of the White House Historical Association, was glad to resume the egg roll in person after last year's cancellation. He visited the White House as a kid and knew it was a big deal. I do have very vivid memories of that and the impact that these places, these historic places, the White House, the feel, the symbol, the awareness, even at a young age, of who had lived in that building, who had worked in that building. Every year, the egg roll attracts close to 30,000 people. 
Reporting from the nation's capital, Carrie Nunez, NTD News. Coming up, the NBA playoffs tonight. Will Luka Doncic give it a go? And is any help coming for one-man show Nikola Jokic? And the Washington Commanders respond to the Federal Trade Commission on allegations they stole from the NFL. That and more coming up on NTD News. Portuguese soccer superstar Cristiano Ronaldo announced today that one of his newborn twins has passed away. He and his partner shared the tragic news on social media. The pair describes the loss as the greatest pain a parent can feel. They went on to say that the fact that one child is still alive gives them strength to keep going. Asking for privacy during this difficult time, the couple thanked the doctors and nurses for their expert care and support. The 37-year-old Ronaldo, five times World Player of the Year, rejoined Manchester United last year after winning multiple trophies with Real Madrid and Juventus. Three playoff games are scheduled for tonight in the NBA as the Raptors, Mavericks and Nuggets try to even their series. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Tonight's action tips off with the Sixers looking to go up 2-0 as they host the Raptors. Toronto held stars Joel Embiid and James Harden in check in the opener, but second-year guard Tyrese Maxey went off, scoring 38 points as Philly rolled to the win. A victory today for the Sixers may be crucial, as All-NBA defensive guard Matisse Thibel won't be available for games 3 and 4 in Toronto due to his vaccination status. In Dallas, the Mavs will try to even things up against Utah, but it won't be easy without the services of all-NBA guard Luka Doncic. Doncic missed Game 1 with a calf injury and is listed as doubtful for tonight's contest. It's fair to say that the Mavs' whole game plan centers around him as he led the team in scoring, rebounding, and assists this past season. And in the nightcap, the Warriors host the Nuggets. While Denver is still formidable with MVP favorite Nikola Jokic running the offense, they might see the return of Michael Porter Jr. later on in the series, though Jamal Murray is still set to miss the rest of the season. Golden State has dealt with their own injury bug this year, but with Steph Curry back for Game 1, the Warriors' big three are finally together. The trio have won three NBA titles, but have played just 11 minutes together this season entering the series. Dave Martin, NTD News. The running of the 126th Boston Marathon today featured more than 28,000 participants doing the 26-mile-plus route. Due to the pandemic, this is the first time since 2019 that the event was held on its traditional Patriots Day spot. Kenya's Evans Chibet won the men's race with a time of 2 hours, 6 minutes, and 51 seconds. Defending champion Benson Kipruto who won the 2021 race just six months ago, finished third. Olympic champion Perez Jepchirchir, also from Kenya, won a back-and-forth battle to take the women's title over Ethiopia's Ababel Yeshine. The two traded places eight times in the final mile before Jepchirchir pulled away, winning by four seconds. And in keeping with Patriots Day traditions, the Boston Red Sox played a home game this morning against the Minnesota Twins. 
The Sox are expected to be a couple players short in an upcoming road trip north of the border. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Minnesota topped Boston 8-3 using a four-run eighth to blow the game open. The inning featured just one hit, a two-run single by Jorge Polanco, but was highlighted by four walks and two wild pitches, the latter of which each brought home a run. Polanco also homered in the third, a two-run shot off Boston starter Rich Hill, who took the loss. Minnesota's Dylan Bundy got the win, his second of the young season. Xander Bogarts and Gio Urshela each had three hits on the day. Meanwhile, Boston manager Alex Cora said the team will have to do without multiple unvaccinated players next week when they travel to Toronto to take on the Blue Jays. Pitcher Tanner Houck told the Boston Globe he's unvaccinated against COVID-19 and won't play in the four-game set, even though he would have been in line to pitch game two. Players sidelined by COVID-19 vaccine issues aren't paid and don't accrue Major League Service time. Dave Martin, NTD News. Today, the NFL's Washington Commanders denied allegations of stealing from the NFL in a letter sent to the Federal Trade Commission, known as the FTC. The letter came as a response to Congress asking the FTC to look into the team's business practices. The U.S. House Oversight Committee last week told the Trade Commission it found evidence the team had stolen money from the league by withholding ticket revenue from visiting teams and refundable deposits from fans while keeping two sets of books. Restoring energy independence is proving to be a fine line to walk for the Biden administration as they try to appease climate activists while facing mounting pressure to lower prices at the pump. The administration is still trying to secure a path forward on renewable energy production in the U.S. How is this plan coming along? NTD's Melina Wisecup has the details. President Biden has vowed to transition America to renewable energy. One goal is to have half of all U.S. vehicles electric in just eight years. But right now, that goal conflicts with another pressing matter, U.S. energy independence. NTD spoke with a senior policy analyst to learn more. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be a challenge. Um, currently today, we uh, rely a lot on other countries for um, importing materials to process electric vehicles. Um, currently, 90% of um, you know, rare earth minerals, for example, are processed in, in China. Lithium is a key ingredient in batteries for electric cars. Right now, the U.S. only has one lithium mine in Nevada, and there are less than 30 battery plants. To accelerate this effort, the Biden administration in March invoked the Defense Production Act to help invest in building some of this infrastructure. And so what that practically means is that he can use his power to issue grants and loans to uh, create new battery mines um, and, and processing plants. The Department of Energy is working towards opening 13 more battery plants by 2025. But even as we start to see more electric cars on the road, some energy analysts point out that electric vehicles still must rely on a power source for energy. But at the end of the day, you have to take a look at under the, under the hood, where does the electricity for your electric vehicles come from? So unless you have a solar powered you know, electric vehicle, you have to plug into somewhere. He says one solution is to have a mixed energy approach, such as using a mix of coal, natural gas, renewables, and nuclear energy. For example, coal can be cleaned up a lot through filters, through processing, 
of the ore components so that it burns a lot cleaner. As for nuclear energy, right now Russia and China dominate the nuclear energy market. Now on Capitol Hill, there's a bipartisan push led by Senators Joe Manchin and Jim Reich to invest resources into developing American nuclear energy. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And utility companies want to upgrade our aging power grid. Currently, it's not always dependable, with some parts of America experiencing long outages. However, we're also experiencing high energy prices. NTD's Fake Quarter has more. Power companies want to upgrade the power grid. The aging power grid is currently suffering from dependability issues, such as long, large-scale power outages. Prices are going to go up. There's no two ways about that. Don Whaley is the president of Ohm Connect Energy. Whaley says the money it takes to improve the system will eventually be collected from U.S. consumers. This comes as U.S. energy prices are steadily rising. We're going to see this summer, certainly in Texas and in other areas that have high air conditioning load, we're going to see significant increases in the cost of electricity. DTE Energy, which is a Michigan-based utility company, wants to spend up to $35 billion to replace coal plants with renewables and battery storage. DTE CEO Jerry Norcia says, We have entered an historic period of transformation in the energy industry. Another company, Southern California Edison, wants to spend up to $30 billion to lower wildfire risk and prepare for greater electricity demand. It also wants to build big batteries to store renewable energy. With wind and solar, the power is distributed all around. And so you've got, A, you've got to have more wires. You've got to have new technologies. Sterling Burnett is a senior fellow at the Heartland Institute. Burnett says renewable energies bring many additional challenges and that they're even more vulnerable to the weather and outages. The U.S. power grid is generally made up of three parts, the eastern grid, the western grid, and ERCOT, which covers Texas. Construction of the grid started in the early 1900s. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, California authorities announced on Friday the arrest of 47 suspected gang members. They're accused of drive-by shootings, murder, assaults, and funding their illicit activities in the Central Valley through prostitution rings and the sale of guns and narcotics. During the operation, a total of 19 shootings were prevented. Two shootings were planned mass shootings. Staying in California, both kids and grown-ups alike took part in this year's annual Big Wheel Race in San Francisco. The race finally took place after two years of being postponed. More soon here on NTD News. Over to the West Coast, California law enforcement officials announced the takedown of a street gang in Fresno County. Authorities say suspected gang members are tied to a number of drive-by shootings, murders, and human trafficking cases. Most significantly, the team said they prevented several other large-scale gang shootings, similar to the Sacramento shooting. NTD's Cynthia Kai brings us more. A five-month investigation into violent criminal street gangs in Fresno County culminated last Thursday with the arrest of 47 suspected street gang members. The suspects in the case showed no regard for human life and not only shot and murdered multiple victims, but they also used human trafficking and the sale of narcotics 
and guns to fund their operation. The investigation found gang members using the funds to post bonds for other gang members to get out of jail. Balderrama said Operation No-Fly Zone was a multi-agency operation involving 200 law enforcement personnel, helicopters, fixed-wing aircrafts, and 25 SWAT teams. During the operation, a total of 19 shootings were prevented. Two shootings were planned mass shootings, one on April 2nd, a day before the Sacramento mass shooting, and on April 11th. Both were going to occur here in Fresno. These shootings did not occur as we were able to use the intelligence in time to place a strong police presence in the areas and deter the shootings. He said, we know they called it off because we were there, but did not provide other details. During the press conference, Attorney General Rob Bonta expressed gratitude towards all agencies involved in Operation No-Fly Zone. Fresno County District Attorney Lisa Smitkamp said all the individuals arrested in the operation had previous encounters with law enforcement officers and the courts. They have been given programs, they have been given counseling, they have been given opportunities to change their life. They have chosen, as most do who are not held accountable for their actions, to continue their criminal behaviors. Increased and unearned jail and prison time credits, early releases, and light sentences by judges encourage them to continue with their criminality. Smith Kemp criticized current laws for being too weak. The politicians to, who pretend to care about law and order with sound bites when tragedies occur or show up to say they care about victims during election seasons are the ones who continue to support the weakened laws passed by the people who call themselves criminal justice reformers. She thanked Attorney General Bonta for voicing support towards Fresno County law enforcement efforts. And I would encourage you to speak to the governor and to the people in the state assembly about stopping these political agendas, theories, and versions of reform that are not working. Smitkamp's comments and the efforts of Operation No-Fly Zone come as the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation is proposing to make the state's early release program for inmates permanent. Currently, inmates can shorten their sentences by earning credits if they participate in firefighting, educational courses, and other rehabilitation programs, an initiative created under Proposition 57 and passed by California voters in 2016. During the COVID-19 pandemic, early release rules were adjusted to allow inmates to earn credits more easily. Opponents of the initiative attribute recent increases in violent crime to early releases. San Jose police concluded a long-term multi-jurisdictional investigation involving a prolific robbery crew. The suspects allegedly targeted multiple jewelry stores throughout the Bay Area. We hear more from NTD's Cynthia Kai. San Jose police announced the arrest of six suspects in connection to multiple smash-and-grab robberies between October 2021 to January 2022. SJPD robbery unit detectives identified multiple suspects entering jewelry stores wearing masks. The suspects used sledgehammers and tools to break open glass display cases and take thousands of dollars worth of jewelry. Some of the suspects were armed with firearms and pepper spray. 
After stealing merchandise, the suspects would run into vehicles waiting outside and flee the scene. As part of the investigation, detectives seized several firearms, including two assault weapons with extended magazines, ghost guns, and gun manufacturing equipment. SJPD received support and help from the U.S. Marshal Service and other police departments around the Bay Area. Chief of Police Anthony Mata said, Our robbery detectives continue to do amazing work in identifying those responsible for victimizing our community, and together with the outstanding work by our Covert Response Unit, Burglary Prevention Unit, and Special Operations Personnel, our department ensured the successful arrest and apprehension of these dangerous individuals. Police say the investigation is still ongoing and expect more arrests. After missing two years due to pandemic restrictions, San Francisco's annual Bring Your Own Big Wheel race was able to start rolling again on Sunday. Costumes, creative vehicles, and enthusiastic crowds could all be seen at the all-ages just-for-fun event. NTD's Jason Blair went this year to check out the competition. Bring Your Own Big Wheel, an annual event where both kids and adult kids get a chance to race down a windy San Francisco street. After being postponed in 2020 and 2021, the event finally gets to hold its 20th race. It's been so fun. Bro. I didn't even know this existed, but uh, I've had a blast. I mean, everyone just bombs the hill and there's crashes everywhere and it's just, it's so much fun. Um, I think my favorite part of the kids, they go super fast. The second turn of my first run, I just completely slammed into the wall and then was able to just keep going. And then after that, I got like a boost from a guy who caught his leg behind me and we just started flying down the, uh, flying down the hill. It was awesome. The last one was awesome. John spun around backwards and just carried down with the flow. According to the organizers, things first started in 2000 by John Brummett when he took a lone ride down Lombard Street on a big wheel while 13 people watched. Over the years, it grew bigger until 2007. The residents near Lombard eventually asked them to leave. Since 2008, the event has been held at Vermont Street, which is also steep with plenty of sharp turns. It's great that they can do it. Hopefully they're able to continue doing it. You know, it's one of those fun things that seems to only happen around here. The other guy crashed, and I crashed into him in and my I was defense. like, oh, no, I was like, bye, Eddie. I was like, no. It's been awesome. I was kind of nervous. You know, coming into it, like I didn't know what to expect. And then you just get swept up in the speed and the, the okay. crowd. Not all the big wheels can hold up for the whole race. Some end up getting scrapped after having too much fun. We've recovered uh, four wheels and two seats, <laughs> so it's going gonna, it's gonna to go back into our cache of equipment for next year. If you want to roll down the hill, there's no fee. However, you do want to register and make sure you bring your own big wheel. According to the event website, the race costs about $10,500 to hold, which is mostly covered with donations and out of the organizers' pockets. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And in Texas, police dogs are getting special care. A hospital is donating individual first aid kits to all of Houston's canine officers. Here are the details. Canine officers in Houston, Texas, are receiving life-saving emergency safety kits. The kits are donations from Memorial Hermann Life Flight, which is a hospital-based medical air transport service in Houston that transports ill or injured patients in helicopters. The kits that you see before me, right here to my right, 
are, are lifesavers. Uh, one of the greatest things about this kit is that we actually use them on humans, but it contains an, uh, different components in it. But we took the idea, collaborated it with uh, how we could uh, assist the canines in the event they are injured. Life Flight launched a canine casualty care course in 2020. The program offers transportation and treatment for injured canines, as well as emergency care training for canine handlers. It's the only service of its kind in the nation. It's actually hands-on on this course where they actually learn to wound pack and do stuff on mannequin dogs and on real live dogs. We do receive donations for training materials, mannequins. We have probably ten, fifteen thousand dollars in just canine mannequins for training for CPR. The same training and canine safety kit helped Houston officer Paul Foster save his canine partner Nate when a suspect stabbed the police dog multiple times in January. He probably would have bled out that day and probably would not be with me still. So it, uh, it was very important it's critical that we have medical kits like this. They take great risk, great risk because a lot of times on a scene, it might be the canine, maybe the first one into a building or something like that. Officers say that Life Flight's course is expanding as there are many requests for the program coming from outside of Texas. NTD News, Texas. Coming up, Shanghai reports its first ever virus deaths since the start of the lockdown. The city recorded over 300,000 cases and only three deaths. And violence breaks out at a holy site in Jerusalem amid Passover and Ramadan. A group of Palestinians throws rocks and fireworks, attempting to prevent Jews from visiting the Temple Mount. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. China. Shanghai reported its first COVID deaths today for the first time since its lockdown began. The city has been locked down for more than half a month now, with over 300,000 reported cases, but strangely no deaths attributed to the virus until now. NTD's Don Ma has the story. Health officials say three people died from COVID on Sunday. They were between 89 and 91 years old. A number of outlets have pointed out how low the death count has been in Shanghai. For comparison, Hong Kong has reported thousands of deaths amid its recent virus outbreak. Shanghai has been battling a surge in Omicron cases. The city's lockdown is the most severe since the one in Wuhan. Locals are not allowed to leave their homes, even to buy groceries. Immunology and global health specialist Dr. Alejandro Diaz tells me lockdowns are not the right way to tackle Omicron. Lockdowns, they don't work as well as we thought. They don't work as well. But what I can tell you is that herd immunity and vaccination rate for those who believe in the vaccine is key. Locking down Shanghai is like trying to stamp out the common cold. Diaz explains because that is what Omicron is comparable to. Omicron, it's really like very similar to common cold. You just stay at home for two or three days and then you go to work, you go to school, you go outside. City authorities are also sending infected residents to government-run quarantine facilities. If you're wondering what the living conditions are like at some of these facilities, 
They're not good. Construction hasn't even finished at some of them. People are sleeping on the ground. There are water leaks in the ceilings, and the facilities are packed with people. One Shanghai resident said that he actually got virus symptoms after being sent there. And keep in mind that the people at these places are mostly those who have the virus. As the Shanghai lockdown continues, Chinese netizens have started echoing the first line of the Chinese national anthem, which says, stand up, those who refuse to be slaves. But now it seems Chinese censors are banning the first line of its national anthem online. Hashtags of the phrase are no longer searchable on Chinese social media platform Weibo. China wants to be a powerful country on the world stage, but economists have said that it can't achieve that goal if it keeps its economy locked down. Don Ma, NTD News. Violence broke out again around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem this past weekend. Israeli police say a group of Palestinian Muslims threw rocks and fireworks to prevent Jewish worshippers from visiting the holy site. NTD's Allison Lee has more. Hundreds of young Palestinians set up barricades at the Temple Mount and threw rocks and fireworks this past Sunday morning. They did so in anticipation of Jewish visitors coming to the holy site, which is the holiest for Jews and the third holiest for Muslims. Israeli police later entered the compound to safeguard the Jewish visitors, cleared out the Palestinians and arrested several people for rioting. This year, the Muslim month of Ramadan coincides with the Jewish Passover, drawing tens of thousands of visitors to Jerusalem's old city. Under long-time understandings, Jews are allowed to visit the Temple Mount, but are barred from praying there. The Israeli government released videos of other skirmishes near the holy site. One video shows Palestinian rioters throwing rocks at buses just outside the old city. Police say several passengers suffered minor injuries. Another video shows three Jewish worshippers physically assaulted in the old city. Israeli police say they arrested 18 people on Sunday in connection with the riots and assaults. In a statement, the Israeli government says Israel is determined to maintain freedom of worship for all. That includes clamping down on those that promote violence, desecrate holy sites, and pervert the spirit of the holy days. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Two British men who surrendered to Russian forces in the besieged city of Mariupol appeared on Russian state TV. They had both been Ukrainian residents before the invasion and had joined the country's military serving as Marines. Two British fighters captured in Ukraine by Russian forces appeared on Russian state TV on Monday and asked to be exchanged for a politician who is being held by Ukrainian authorities. It was unclear how freely the two men were able to talk. They identified themselves as Sean Pinner and Aidan Aslan. Both appeared to be nervous and tired. They spoke separately after being prompted by an unidentified man. The two men asked Prime Minister Boris Johnson to help bring them home in exchange for Ukraine releasing pro-Russian politician Viktor Medvedchuk. Medvedchuk was also asking to be swapped in a video released around the same time on Monday by Ukraine's intelligence service. In his appeal to Russia's President Putin and Ukraine's President Zelensky, he asked to be exchanged for what he called the defenders of the Ukrainian city of Mariupol and its citizens. It was also unclear how freely Medvedchuk was speaking in the video. Both Pinner and Aslan fought in the Ukraine side in Mariupol, the city now thought to be under Russian control. 
On the weekend, Medvedchuk's wife made an appeal to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Mr. Prime Minister, you have a great influence on President Zelensky. If you are not indifferent to the fate of your subjects, help their family and friends return Aiden and Sean. Help me return Victor. I'm grateful for your attention. Marchenko also released a second video message to Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince, asking him to use his ties with Johnson to secure the prisoner swap. She said she believed Medvedchuk's life was in mortal danger. At a news conference in Moscow earlier last week, she said that one of the two photos released by Ukraine showed he had been beaten. Medvedchuk is the leader of a pro-Russian opposition party and owner of a media empire. He is considered to be Putin's closest and most influential ally in Ukraine. The Russian leader is godfather to one of his daughters. Medvedchuk had been placed under house arrest last year to face treason and terrorism, facing charges which he denies. Ukraine says he escaped a few days after the Russian invasion began in February, but was later captured. The Kremlin last week said Medvedchuk did not have any communication back-channel to the Russian leadership. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Staying in the UK, British Home Secretary Priti Patel has defended the government's plans to send illegal immigrants to East Africa. In a joint article with the Rwandan Foreign Minister, published in the Times newspaper, she challenged those opposed to the scheme to come up with a better idea to tackle small boats crossing the channel. NTD's Jane Werrell brings us this report. The Home Secretary says her plan to send migrants to East Africa is a bold new approach. Writing in the Times newspaper with the Rwandan Foreign Minister, she defended the plans, saying, Through investment in jobs, skills and opportunities in Africa, this bold new approach hopes to set a precedent that could be replicated elsewhere. It will disrupt the business model of organised crime gangs and deter migrants from putting their lives at risk. She said innovative solutions are needed to put an end to the deadly trade. Opposition parties have criticised the plans, and so have some within the Conservative Party. One MP said that while he has sympathy with the government, it's unlikely to reach its aims. The Archbishop of Canterbury joined the chorus of critics during his Easter Sunday address. He said there are serious ethical questions about sending asylum seekers overseas. He made the headlines, but some MPs criticised his comments. Jacob Rees-Mogg told The Telegraph that while the Archbishop is entitled to his opinion, he has missed the effect of the policy. The Energy Minister is also defending the scheme and said critics of the plan need to show an alternative solution. Jane Worrell, NGD News. Coming up, a photo op with the Easter Bunny and plenty of colourful eggs at the Chicago Lincoln Park Zoo's annual Easter egg hunt. Parents brought their kids to have fun and learn about the history of the holiday. And Dachshund owners in Germany celebrated the 50th anniversary of the 1972 Munich Olympic Games. The mascot that year was a Dachshund named Waldi. More on that when we return here on NTD News. The annual Easter egg hunt at the Chicago Lincoln Park Zoo welcomed parents and kids on Saturday morning. Children learned to commemorate the Christian holiday through the activity. Let's take a look.
Hundreds of parents and their children enjoyed a fun-filled Easter extravaganza event in Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo the day before Easter. Egg hunting is not only fun for the kids, but also teaches them about the religious holiday, which commemorates Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead three days after his crucifixion. It was so fun. I found them under rocks and stuff. It was really fast for me because the eggs weren't like hitting in like really, really, really hard spots. And I got them easily, a lot of them. How many do you have? Eight. While some families were busy with egg hunting, others were taking pictures with the Easter Bunny or dancing. Megan Bernstein was enjoying the festivities with her four-year-old son and nephew. This is our first time, but um, it's really fun. They were excited to come out and do it today. Missy O'Connor from the south suburbs came with her kids and her friends. We did the zoo lights here and they loved it, so we thought it was a good idea to try the egg one, the egg hunt, so it's been, it's been great. Three generations of Tim Morrison's family gathered at the zoo. Morrison hopes the egg hunting tradition can help children learn about the significance of Easter. The Easter bunny can in the candy is just an extra thing, but the real reason is because of the Christ rising to save us. According to History.com, eggs have long symbolized new life and rebirth, and the Easter egg represents the tomb from which Christ rose from the dead. Over the years, egg hunting has evolved into a popular Easter activity. Dachshund owners gathered in Munich, Germany today to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Munich Olympic Games, which included a dachshund as the mascot. Let's take a look. Why is an Olympic anniversary being celebrated with a dachshund? The 1972 Summer Games mascot was a dachshund named Waldi. They were a popular breed in Munich at the time. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary this year on the occasion of the 1972 Olympic Games. And because the 1972 mascot was our Waldi, we've come up with this special day for all the dachshunds of Munich. Some dachshunds donned sweaters in Waldi's colors and strutted their way through an obstacle course and fashion show. This is a very, very special event for me. We do meet at times for, like, dachshund meetings, but those are much smaller and not such a great anniversary as this one. Yes, a dachshund like Daisy, they have quite a personality, and I think that's just a dog with character. That's beautiful. The official date of the 50th anniversary will be in late August, with the Games having taken place from August 26th to September 11th, 1972. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.